listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's scripture is John 3, 1 through 15. So please, you're already standing for the reading of God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning on this rainy Sunday. And I apologize for the humidity in here. It feels like it might rain inside. Uh, It's an old school and the AC has already been turned off for the year. So it is what it is. So thanks for bearing with and uh, hope we can enjoy our time, continue to enjoy our time in God's Word this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to, to say hello after the service. So please feel free to come up and say Say hi and introduce yourself, Uh, but we'd love for this to be a place, a community that you could find yourself being a part of, whether you already know Christ or you're just kind of checking out who Jesus is. I want this to be a place where we can continue on our spiritual journey together towards Christ. So grateful for all of us to gather together this morning. As we get ready to, to dive into this text in John 3 this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you on a, on a rainy, dreary day. But God, we pray that in the midst of the rain, in the midst of the dreariness, that I know some of us probably woke up this morning thinking, is it really time to get up? It's so dark outside. But I pray that even as we think about that this morning, that you would shine your light into our hearts and minds today. That you would illumine our minds. We might understand, we might receive what you have for us this morning. That you'd give us eyes to see your glorious grace in the face of Jesus. God, I pray that you'd awaken us this morning. Maybe literally awaken us this morning. I pray that you'd awaken us spiritually this morning. 
And that by doing so that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we might be attentive to receive what you have to say to us today. God, I pray that by the power and work of your Holy Spirit, that you would do a supernatural work this morning. That we would leave today knowing that we've been in your presence. So God, we ask that you do that work. That's not something we can fabricate on our own. We can't make that happen by our will. But God, we submit that to you. We plead with you that as we open up your living and active word, that you would use it today to transform our lives and bring us to you maybe for the first time or transform us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. You know, over the years, there's been a lot of just fascinating interviews that have taken place that you can watch on 2020 or a special interview period on ABC World News or something like that where an interviewer sits down with the interviewee and maybe it's an artist or a musician or an athlete or a politician and we kind of have this interesting look into their life and into their world. And, and that's kind of the fascinating thing about interviews is that we, whether we're reading it or, or watching it, that we have this intimate look into the life and thoughts of an individual. We're, we're part of a private conversation that's being put on display for all of us to observe and watch. I mean, it's a strange privilege to have to be able to do that. And interviews can be life-changing. They can be life-changing for the interviewee. They can be life-changing for the interviewer because just in a few phrases, it could lift someone up to a, to a higher place, elevate them, or actually destroy the perception of who they are with just a few recorded phrases. As we come to our text today in our Seeing Jesus sermon series, this sermon series we're walking through the Gospel of John. The Apostle John is giving an account of the life of Jesus, and he tells us the purpose of this Gospel, this story that he's telling, is that we might see Jesus and believe in him. And so as we've been walking through this sermon series, we get to a text today that was just read by Adrian where we get to peek in on a fascinating interview-like conversation that Jesus has with a curious man, a man who's coming to Jesus to try and find some answers. But where Jesus takes the conversation is life-changing, not only for this man, but for all of us who sit here today, for all people, because what we learn from this conversation that Jesus has is foundational. It's foundational for anyone to experience true life. It's foundational for anyone to experience true freedom. And life and freedom are things that I think, if we're honest, we're all looking for. And we chase after a lot of different things for it, and our culture offers us lots of different things to meet that need, but we're looking for life. We're looking for freedom. And if you already know Christ, what Jesus says here in this text has the potential to do two things. To, to cultivate humility that's rooted in our identity and to motivate you to share the gospel with others. And if you don't yet know Christ, I'm grateful that you're here this morning. And what Jesus says in this text also has the potential to do two things in your life. To reveal to you, to clarify for you, you your biggest need in life and at the same time to offer you the only solution to that need. And so with that, there's something critical for all of us to learn from this one-on-one -on -one interaction that takes place in the dead of night, the quiet and the stillness of the night between Jesus and this curious man named Nicodemus. But let me, before we dive into this, let me just encourage you, I, I don't want you to watch this, to look at this like you would a Barbara Walters interview, where, where you kind of sit passively and observe what's being said. 
but instead to lean into this, to lean in as an intentional learner. Because I believe that every time we gather together and we open up God's word as it's preached and proclaimed that God wants to do something in your life. He wants to show you something. He wants to teach you something. He wants to bring about life in places of death and darkness. So with that, let's lean into John chapter 3 this morning and may we see Jesus more clearly today. Last week, we ended chapter 2 and we saw Jesus go into the temple, the place of worship for God's people at the time, and he goes into the temple and he, he clears the temple out. He drives out the animals. He flips over tables with coins and money on them because he's seeking to elevate our view of who God is, that he is worthy of all worship. He's worthy of the entirety of our lives. And so Jesus is trying to make that point that the temple is a place of holiness as we come into the presence of God. But at the end of that section, we saw Jesus say what seemed to be some pretty outlandish things. He, he announces to the Pharisees and religious leaders, he says, if you tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it up again. They're perplexed by that. They don't understand how that could be possible. It took 46 years to build this temple. But John tells us what Jesus is referring to is himself. He's talking about his resurrection, that one day he will rise again because Jesus is the true temple which means Jesus is the place of true worship and the presence of God among us. We're all worshipers. We all want to give worship to something. God's created us in that way. But we often worship the wrong things. We worship creation. We worship ourselves. We worship other people. What Jesus does through his life, his death, and his resurrection is make us right worshipers of God. And so when we come to the beginning of chapter 3 this morning, it seems as if John is going to tease out more of what he's already talked about. Look at the end of chapter 2 real quick. It says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. It needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. When we get to chapter 3, it seems like some time has passed. Jesus has been in Jerusalem for a little while now. He's been doing these different signs that people are observing. But then he makes this comment on humanity. He knows what's in the heart of man. So I think what John's doing here at the beginning of chapter 3 is he's like, let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about when Jesus is kind of, he's revealing himself to people, but he also knows What's going on in the hearts of men? Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They're the ones that knew the scriptures really well. They memorized them. They taught them. And they were, so they were the leaders of the day. Nicodemus is a part of this group, the Pharisees, but it says he's also a ruler of the Jews, which means that Nicodemus is part of what's called the Sanhedrin. It's kind of the governing body of God's people at this time, the ruling body of God's people. And so when Jesus cleared the temple, many of these religious leaders, like Nicodemus, saw Jesus flip tables over and drive animals out of the temple and cause this big scene and make these outlandish declarations about being the temple of God. And so when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to talk about what he's observed of Jesus, he's seeking to gain some clarity. 
And we don't know why, G- why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. We could speculate on that all day, but John doesn't tell us why. But one thing we see throughout the Gospel of John is John likes to use this kind of comparison of darkness and light. That we are called out of darkness into light. We're called out of death into life. And so the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night is a picture of a man who's in darkness. Maybe like you woke up this morning feeling like, man, it's dark and dreary outside. I need some light in my life. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, but notice when Nicodemus comes, he doesn't ask Jesus anything. He just makes a statement about what he thinks about Jesus, what he believes already about Jesus. Jesus, you're a teacher. That's what he means when he says, Rabbi, you're, you're a teacher. We, we understand this. We believe that you've come from God because no one could do the things you've done if you didn't. Now, what we see Nicodemus doing here is he's saying, he's not saying that, that Jesus is God. He's not looking at Jesus saying, you must be God. He's saying, Jesus, you must be from God because you couldn't do the kinds of things that you're doing unless you are. It's kind of like a prophet. Maybe you're one of those guys. Maybe you're a, a prophet that's come to speak to God's people. But even though Nicodemus doesn't explicitly ask Jesus anything, he seems to be asking Jesus a question. Who are you really? Like, like, what's up with you? What's going on with you? It seems like Nicodemus is seeking Jesus, but he hasn't yet truly seen Jesus for who he is. And maybe some of you find yourself there this morning, that you've known about Christ, you've heard stories about Jesus, maybe you've never heard anything, and this is the first time in a song we sang this morning that you're hearing about this man, Jesus Christ. Maybe you find yourself this morning seeking in some way, but haven't yet truly seen Jesus. Nicodemus is curious. He's confused about Jesus. So he's trying to figure out how to assess Jesus, how to explain him. How how can I describe to my fellow religious leaders and the people of Israel who you really are? Let me try and size you up. Let me try and figure you out. But Jesus does what he often does. He rejects that and flips it on its head. Nicodemus came to assess Jesus, but instead of assessing Jesus, Jesus assesses Nicodemus, and all of humanity for that matter. He doesn't answer Nicodemus's perceived question directly, but instead makes kind of a, what seems like a, a curious statement, a strange statement. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He makes this statement about Jesus, and then Jesus responds in this way. He's saying, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, the phrase born again, that's such a loaded phrase in our culture. I mean, if you turn on the news or you read stories and the media is talking about Christians, a lot of times they'll say, oh, he's a born again Christian. And I think most of the time what they're trying to say is like he's a, he's a zealot when it comes to his faith. Or he actually takes this whole Jesus thing seriously. And kind of cr- trying to qualify or something what it means to be a, a Christian, being a born-again Christian. So it starts to have a lot of overtones to it. And a lot of times it's used negatively if someone's a born-again Christian. And so is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is that what he means? Well, Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's talking about. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
I mean, Nicodemus' response is kind of with a little bit of contempt, maybe laughable in some ways. Like, what? Like, Jesus, come on. Like, you want me to get inside my mother's womb again? Like, to see the kingdom of God, what in the world are you talking about? Like, I didn't come to talk about that kind of stuff. That's crazy talk. I want to know who you are. I want to know what's up. What are you doing? Why, Why are you here? And so Jesus reiterates, he rephrases what he's just said. Verses five and six. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Being born of the water doesn't mean, or he's not referring to your physical birth. He's not referring to baptism. Those are things that sometimes we think, oh, maybe that's what he's talking about here when he's talking about water, birth by water. What he's talking about is cleansing. What he's talking about is is having sin removed from you. It's like when we wash dirt off of things, when something's filthy or covered in dirt or grime, maybe your car or you're cleaning your house, you're you're using water to, to cleanse that, to release that. And that's the effect of sin in our life. When we've rebelled against God, it's stained us. It's disrupted our life and our relationship with God. It's separated us from him. We have no place with him because we are unclean because of what sin's done to us. And so we need to be cleansed of that. But there's a reason Jesus uses this kind of language with Nicodemus. Remember who Nicodemus is. Who is he? He's a, he's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of God's people. And so Nicodemus knows the word really, really well. He knows the Old Testament really, really well. He, he understands the promises that God has made. And so Jesus is alluding to something Nicodemus should know about. It's the promise that Ezekiel gives in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel is one of the prophets of the Old Testament, and there's a long book in your Bible titled with his name, and God speaks through him to his people. Nicodemus would have known this text. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. God, speaking through Ezekiel, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you our heart of flesh. See, Nicodemus knew this text. If you would have asked him, do you need to be cleansed? He would have acknowledged, yes, you need to be cleansed. You need to even be given a new heart. God's word says that. The problem is Nicodemus thought that came about because of who he was. He thought that came about because of what he did for God. That his lineage, that his ethnicity is what enabled him to have a clean heart. His lineage, his ethnicity, his uh, outward religious actions is what enabled him to have a relationship with God, to be made new, to be united with God. And what Jesus is saying, and this is really important for us to understand here, what Jesus is saying is, yes, you must be cleansed. Yes, you must be made new, but this isn't going to come about because of your family history. It's not going to come about because of where you're from. It's not going to come about because of what you do for God. It's not going to come about because of what you know or who you know. He says flesh gives birth to flesh. He's not talking about that in a sinful way, but just the the natural reality of life that you are born from your mother physically. And so that's true. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But if you want to be alive spiritually, the spirit gives birth to spirit. 
If you want to be cleansed, if you want to be made alive, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, a place of holiness and perfection where you can stand rightly before God, seeing him face to face in all of his glory, if you want to be able to do that, it's not going to happen by anything except a work of the Spirit to make you new. You must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus goes on in verses 7, to eight, 7 through 8 to say this isn't something to scratch your head about. Not something to marvel at. It's seeing beyond the tactile. It's seeing beyond the explainable to the mysterious works of God. And so to do that, he gives us an illustration to help us understand, to help Nicodemus understand this work of the Spirit. And he says, you know what wind is? And we know what wind is. We've seen the effects of it. It was a windy day the last few days, leaves blowing off of trees. We've seen news coverage. Maybe you've experienced a tornado or a hurricane before. We see these 100-mile-an-hour winds, but we don't actually see the wind. We just see the effects of the wind. There isn't like a, a, a place, a factory that produces wind where there's a giant fan that blows wind to the east or the west. And even if we explain it scientifically how wind comes about, the reality is we don't actually see the origination of the wind. We just see its effects. So Jesus is trying to tell us, he's trying to tell Nicodemus, when you see the Spirit at work, what you see is someone's life transformed. What you see is someone who was rebelling against God come to life and now follow him in obedience and in faith, turning from sin and self to turn and follow Jesus. It encapsulates the mystery and majesty of the work of God, but that seems to be the very thing Nicodemus is having a hard time understanding with not being in control of his life in this way, with not being in the know, with not being able to explain and reason everything away. Because as verse 9 shows us, even after Jesus has said all these things, he still doesn't quite get it. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus seems to respond to him with what seems like a, a bit of sanctified sarcasm, if that's a thing. He kind of chides Nicodemus in his response. Look at verses 10 through 12. He says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He, he kind of gently, in some ways, rebukes Nicodemus, a man who thinks he has it all figured out, a man who knows God's word backwards and forward, but doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says to him, listen, you should understand this because you know the word. If you think you know so much about God, how don't you understand what I'm telling you now? And Jesus speaks of what is true. He speaks of what he's seen. He is the very Son of God who's dwelled for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. Nicodemus should get this too, this idea of being made new, this idea of being born again. It shouldn't be surprising to him because right after the promise of Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel 37. If you go back in your Bibles and look at Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel is standing in this place and, and God brings him to this place, this valley of dry bones. And he looks over this valley and it's full of bones. And I think the importance of dry bones is critical. There is zero life in them. Like they've been sitting there for a while, piled up, dry bones. And, and God tells Ezekiel to do something. 
Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 3 through 6, it says this, And he, meaning God, said to me, meaning Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel does that and you know what happens? Flesh comes over these bones. It, they rise up. It says graves are opened. Life comes in place of death. Light comes in places of darkness. And he says to them then, I'm making a covenant of peace with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. He's giving us this visual illustration of what he's talking about in John chapter 3. You must be born again. You must be recreated in order to have life with me. I love the visual picture of that. I know maybe it seems a little bit more, but I was telling Amy at one point, I wanted to get another tattoo, and I was like, you know what would be a great tattoo? Ezekiel 37. Like if I had skulls on my arm, but then they started to like have flesh come upon them to illustrate the gospel, and she was like, maybe not. But I love the picture of that. Like we can visualize someone coming from death to life. And we see this picture that Ezekiel tells us in chapter 37. I will be their God. They will be my people. Nicodemus, don't you understand? Don't you understand what I'm talking about you? If you can't understand this, how in the world will you understand the secret things of heaven? See, I think part of the problem, maybe the main problem for Nicodemus and maybe even us, is that when it comes to trying to understand what Jesus means when he says you must be born again is the fact that Nicodemus doesn't understand his true state before God. Nicodemus is saying, you, you, I mean, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you, you don't believe. You don't accept because you can't see your true spiritual need. It gets to the heart of what Jesus is seeking to communicate about his life and about all of humanity. Again, Nicodemus came to assess Jesus, but Jesus is seeking to help Nicodemus assess himself. Nicodemus didn't understand his need to be made new because Nicodemus believed, he assumed that he was right before God. He assumed that he was right before God because of who he is, because of what he did for God. But even if he did a lot of good things, even if he performed religious duties, it didn't remedy his biggest problem, that there was no spiritual life in Nicodemus at all. That the entirety of his life and soul were infected and effected by sin and rebellion. What it means is that Nicodemus was the walking dead. He's a spiritual zombie. He, he has life. He's going about doing these things, but he has no spiritual life within him. He's spiritually dead. Now we can look at this and we can think, okay, I understand that. I get the reality that to some degree I could get why someone whose life is in the gutter needs this kind of restoration and rescue. I could get why someone whose life is in shambles and in a disarray needs this kind of rescue. Like, I hear about the story of the drug addict who turns to Christ, or someone who committed heinous crimes and turns to Christ, and we can be like, that makes sense. I get why restoration is needed for that person, but we have a hard time sometimes with this kind of person, a person like Nicodemus, a person like probably a lot of us, whose lives look pretty good. We're doing okay. What Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus, what he's communicating to us, is that it, just, it isn't just that kind of person whose life is in shambles. It's every kind of person. 
But everyone needs this. You know, it's popular in our culture to say and believe that everyone's okay. That everyone is, is born okay. We could go along with Lady Gaga and say, hey, I was born this way. I was born the way I am. And, and, and she's right. You are born this way. The problem is, is that how you're born is not okay. That, that you, along with every other person, is infected and affected by sin, just like Nicodemus. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because all of us have chosen to find salvation in someone or something else. All of us have chosen to find security in something or someone else. All of us have chosen to find safety in someone or something else besides God. It could be good things. It could be our moral goodness. It could be pleasure. It could be relationships. We are born into this world set against God, desiring to sit on the throne of our lives. We're all natural-born rebels. So now, instead of giving glory to God, we steal glory from Him. And the effects of that are catastrophic. We can see it in the brokenness of our world. We can see it in the brokenness of our own lives. That means that without being born again, we are all spiritually dead. We are all spiritual zombies. So when Jesus says you must be born again to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, he's declaring a key truth. A spiritually dead person cannot become spiritually alive on their own. I mean, if you go drive by the cemetery, Fairfax Cemetery in Fairfax, and you walk through there, there's not a lot of activity going on. I mean, maybe there's some visitors there, but the people that reside there aren't doing very much. Right? There's no life in places of death. You can't be half dead and half alive. You are either spiritually dead or spiritually alive. The Spirit must do a work in your life to bring about new life. And Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus as someone who thinks he sees Jesus rightly. He's showing him, you can't see me rightly unless God does a work in you to give you new life. And man, this presses on our self-sufficiency. We love to be self-sufficient people. We love to figure things out on our own. And this presses directly on that to say you can't do this on your own. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have or how much performance you do. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And that's significant because that means new, new birth must be a work of God. Just like you didn't decide to be born physically, <laughs> you can't on your own decide to make yourself alive spiritually. But you know what? God wants to do that work in your life. God desires to save men and women from every tribe, every language, every nation, to bring them to life, to have that valley of dry bones, take on flesh and have life and walk amongst this earth, glorifying him as their God and creator. And so what Jesus says in this moment is both a declaration and an invitation. His declaration that you must be born again is a declaration of dismantling. He's starting to take you apart piece by piece. And he isn't saying to you that you aren't beautiful. He isn't saying to you that you aren't valued. You are made in the image of God. Every single person, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done or where you're from, you are inherently valuable before God as an image bearer of God. What Jesus is saying to you is that he's inviting you to see your beauty restored, your value restored, to be restored in the image of God that you might walk with him and be with him forever. See, what he's inviting you to is not to add something to your life. When he's telling you, you must be born again, he's not saying, hey, just add a little Jesus to your life. No, what he's telling you is you need complete renewal. 
because there is nothing in us that isn't defective. And that's the nature of renovation. That's the nature of restoration. We rip out the old. We replace it with new. So this isn't a heart fix, as if our heart is mostly okay. We just need a little tweak here or there. No, this is a heart replacement. And this isn't a crutch. A lot of times people in culture say, oh, Christianity is just a crutch. You weak people. We're not weak. We're dead. We need resurrection. I'm fine with it being a crutch. I'm fine with it being a Jesus who calls me out of the grave by name that I might have life in him. Think about who Nicodemus is. If he can't get into the kingdom of God because of who he is and what he's accomplished, can anyone? The same thing's true for us. No matter how much bad you've done before God, and no matter how much good you've done, no matter who you are, you must be born again. You know what the hope of recreation is, of being born again? It's that you're able to enter the kingdom of God, that you can come into God's kingdom and stand in his presence, presence and him not smite you in front of him and not pour out his wrath on you and separate you from his presence forever and ever, that you can come into the kingdom of God, not just to the edge of the border of the kingdom of God like you squeak in by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin, but that God welcomes you to his table and he calls you son and he calls you daughter because of what Christ has done for you. It makes you a child of God as you're born again in and through Christ. The question for us is how does this actually happen? How does this new birth actually happen? Jesus tells us at the end of this text, it's by looking to Jesus lifted up. Verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember who Jesus is talking to, a religious leader who knew God's word. Jesus is referring to something else that Nicodemus would have known a whole lot about. In Numbers chapter 21, God's people are rebelling against God, and they're turning away from him, and they're going their own way. They're doing their own thing, what we all do. And so God, as a consequence and punishment for their rebellion, sends poisonous snakes into the camp, and they bite the people And they need a remedy for that. They need fixing for that. And so they cry out to Moses, their mediator, and say, Moses, we're going to die. We need something. And so Moses speaks to to God, and God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it up on on a stick, lift it up, and if the people turn to look at this serpent, then they'll be healed. Now, it wasn't the serpent. It didn't have magical powers. God was calling the people to turn back to him, to turn in active faith and obedience to him, to trust in him for healing what Jesus is saying here to a religious leader who would have known this text is, listen, Nicodemus, the same thing will happen to me and through me. I will be lifted up. I will be nailed to a cross. All of the punishment that you deserve for your sin will be put on my back. And in order for you to be saved from the poison of sin, you too must look to me. And whoever looks to Jesus, whoever sees Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. At this moment, Nicodemus doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem, we kind of leave this text and it doesn't have any kind of conclusion to Nicodemus's life here. It seems as if he still isn't quite sure what's going on, but you know what? That changes. Flip in your Bible to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38. This is after Jesus has been crucified. He's 
said it is finished. It is over. The curtain has been torn in two. And this is what happens in, in chapter 19, verse 38. It says, after these things, after Jesus was crucified, Je- Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, which is an interesting picture in and of itself. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 19. Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, and so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus! Nicodemus comes and he brings 75 pounds of spices. Like he's ready to throw a party for Jesus dying for him. He doesn't maybe get the whole picture here, but the man who came to Jesus at night, who didn't know who Jesus was, is at his crucifixion and now is bringing him, ushering him into the place of his resurrection. Some point between when he comes to Jesus at night and when Jesus is crucified on the cross, Nicodemus gets it. His eyes are open to see his Savior, to see his need for new life. So what about us? What are we supposed to do with this declaration of dismantling? Right here and right now in our life, this call to be born again. Maybe you're like Nicodemus at this point in his life. You're curious about Jesus. You're trying to assess who Jesus is trying to figure him out. Maybe you believe Jesus is a good teacher. That's what Nicodemus thought. Maybe you believe Jesus is a good example. A lot of people in our culture believe that, and he is those things, but he's so much more than that. Our Jesus is a faithful Savior, a Savior who came to live a perfect life, to die in your place so that you could be made new, you could be born again. Through his death, you're able to have life. Being born again is not about being a religious fanatic. It's not about that. It's about being restored to the beauty of being a child of God who will be with him forever. And I hope that makes you zealous. Not to beat people over the head, but to be zealous for your Savior who rescued and redeemed you. So have you looked to Jesus? Have you looked to the one who's lifted up for you? Have you looked at him in faith? Have you set aside any false idea that you are good on your own? We all have pseudo-saviors we run after. Sometimes the pseudo-savior is ourselves. We believe we can fix our problem with God, or we chase after other things to do that. But you know what? None of those can change our state. None of those can remedy our biggest problem. In fact, they push us further into death. But friends, God is at work. You're here today. You're hearing the good news of who Christ is and what he's done for you. And there's only one true Savior, the one who was lifted up to give you life. Maybe you're hearing about this for the first time today, or maybe you just need to hear about it one more time. Friend, come alive this morning. Come alive. Look to Jesus and place your faith in him. Place your faith in him that you might experience new birth, new life, freedom and forgiveness now and forever. Maybe for the rest of us here this morning, you've already experienced this new birth. You know that being a born-again Christian is a redundant statement. To be a Christian means you must be born again. And you know how you believe that's happened to you. You've experienced that. You were once dead in your sin, but by God's grace, you've been made alive in Christ. And so when you hear a text like this, it can be easy to think, man, that is really cool. That happened to me a while ago. I hope it happens to some other people too. And yes, that's true and good. But that's not the only thing here. 
It's true that at one time, this is a one-time occurrence, crossing from death to life, but it fundamentally changes who you are. When we go back to a text like this and see that we must be born again, it has to remind us of where our identity is now. That we are in Christ now. We've been united with him in a death like his and shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That we are with Jesus. We have new life in him. It fundamentally changes who you are. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so when we read a text like this, what it should cultivate within us is humility and thanksgiving. You didn't figure this out on your own. Someone had to communicate the gospel to you maybe thousands of times before your eyes were open to your need for Jesus. He gifted with you with faith that you might believe. Where would you be without him? And those of us who are born again, we should be the most humble people in the world because we recognize, we realize, we believe that apart from God's intervention into our life, to his dismantling of our lives, we would be utterly lost. And because that is true for you, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus again. And to look to him tomorrow, remembering that apart from him, you would still be dead in your sin. A spiritual zombie with no hope in this life. And when you are moved by that reality, and I hope you are, I hope you're overcome by it at different times in your life, just recognizing God's radical, lavish grace on you. When you see Jesus, then you're able to show Jesus to the world around you. To point your friends to those and those that are desperately in need of him to your Savior. May we be a humble, worshipful, mission-minded people pointing everyone to Jesus. Man, I long for my neighbors to come to know Jesus, to see them baptized, to come up out of the water and say, there's, there's birth by water and birth by spirit. They're alive in Christ. I long to see our kids and our Sojourn Kids ministry come to know Jesus, to be born again and baptized, celebrating the fact that they've heard the gospel for years as a part of this community from men and women like you who serve them every week. I long to see our youth group come to know Christ, that as they hear the gospel shared on a Sunday morning, or you guys are in here, as you hear the gospel on a Sunday morning, as you hear it in Bible study on a Tuesday night, that God would allow you to be born again and be baptized, that we might celebrate that you've come to life in Christ. I long for anyone in this city, anyone in this town, to the ends of the earth, to be born again and baptized, celebrating the fact that they've risen out of the grave because Jesus called you by name. Man, what's keeping you from coming to Christ today? What's keeping you, brother and sister, if you already know him, from going and telling somebody about him right now? and tomorrow, and the day after that, until he calls you home or comes again. Look to the one who was lifted up for you, and let's worship him together in the life he's given us. He is all we need. You know, we come forward every week as our first response to the preaching of the word to take communion together, and this is a meal for those who have been born again. It's a meal for those who have been born again, and it's a significant meal at that because it's a reminder of the life we have in Christ. It's a reminder the Spirit gives us to refresh us every week in what Jesus has accomplished for you, that we eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for you, and we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for you, the means that enable you to be born again. And we proclaim this reality of his sacrifice for us each and every week as the Holy Spirit nourishes our souls, reminding us that our old self was crucified with him, and now we have new life in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I invite you to come forward this morning rejoicing that you have been born again in Christ. And if you don't yet know Christ, we would just ask you to hang out in your seat. 
but we want you to be born again. So instead of taking the bread, instead of taking the drink this morning, take Jesus today. Turn to him and confess your need for him this morning, even where you sit, and then let somebody around you know that you want to start following Jesus, and we'd love to help you with that. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables at the back, and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we, we thank you for this peek into this, this interview, this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. We, we thank you for showing us our need, just like in Nicodemus, you're showing us our need to be born again, to, to have new life in places of death, to be made alive in Christ. We rejoice in that this morning. And God, if that's already happened in our lives, I pray that as we walk out of here this week, that our identity would be freshly rooted in Christ, that we recognize the life we now have in Jesus, and that would cultivate a, a deep sense of humility and worship and thanksgiving and overflow in evangelism, overthrow and sh- overflow in sharing the gospel with those around us. God, we know that we haven't done that on our own. We didn't figure it out on our own. So we rejoice in that this morning. And God, I pray for those who haven't yet had this happen, who haven't yet been born again. Would you do that right now, even in this moment? Would you give people ears to hear and eyes to see and allow men and women, even that sit in this room, to cross from death to life? And then, God, I pray that as a community, as a church, we would go out of this place and we would tell our neighbors about Jesus. We would tell our coworkers about Jesus. We would tell our locker mates about Jesus, our locker neighbors about Jesus. We would tell our classmates, our dorm neighbors about Jesus. God, would you send us out of here that we might proclaim the good news of Christ and that we would see dead men and women come alive in Jesus right before our very eyes. God, that's not something we can do. You invite us to be a part of it, but we want to take that privilege seriously. So help us to walk in obedience to that today. God, make people alive in you. Bring revival, bring spiritual awakening, not for our glory, but for yours. Thank you for your grace you've lavished on us in Christ to cause us to be born again in him. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.